Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also saw some interesting marijuana news. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has released draft legislation aimed at decriminalizing marijuana at the federal level. Called the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, it would remove weed from the Controlled Substances Act and begin regulating and taxing it. It would still give states the power to set their own laws and would also expunge nonviolent cannabis-related arrests. For more on what to expect in this marijuana debate, we'll speak to Natalie Fertig, federal cannabis policy reporter at Politico. The bill is really interesting. A lot of the bill is the same as the Moore Act, which passed the House last December. But then this bill really fleshes a lot of it out. So you mentioned that states get to set their own rules and regulations regarding cannabis. That includes not legalizing cannabis. And that was true of the Moore Act, but it wasn't really spelled out in detail. This bill spells that out in detail. And You know, after talking to a lot of Republican senators last month on Capitol Hill, to me, that seems like a very obvious sort of outstretched hand to Republican senators who are easily swayed or more easily swayed on the state's rights aspect of cannabis legalization than some of the criminal justice aspects that are kind of why Democrats come to the space. So it's really obvious that this bill is trying to bridge both worlds and find a space that everyone can come to an agreement on. Whether or not they're going to do that is what remains to be seen. Um, We've talked to Democrats and Republicans, me and my colleagues, over the last two months. And, you know, we've talked to Democrats who've said that they are not on board with federal legalization. Whether or not This bill is kind of a a mild step below full federal legalization, which wouldn't allow states to kind of pick and choose their own adventure. So maybe this is more palatable to those Democrats who said they weren't on board with the kind of previous concept. But I mean, that's going to be the question, right? right? We've also talked to Republicans and I don't have a single Republican right now who has committed to saying, yes, I would vote to fully change America's cannabis laws, even Republicans who come from legal states. So it's going to be an uphill battle. Yeah. Right now we have 18 states that have full legalization, 37 states that have uh, medical marijuana there. Talking about kind of the uphill battle with all this, you know, the priority for something like this is much lower because we have talks about infrastructure going on right now. There's all other things that are happening. But has anybody signaled what the holdup is? Why don't they want to decriminalize this on the federal level? Public opinion, obviously, that's something completely different. But public opinion, you know, says that that they're open to that. that The public wants that. More than 60 percent of all Americans are in favor of federally legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana, including 49 or 50 percent of Republicans, depending on the poll that you look at in this last year. It is a popular policy amongst the American voters and the American public. But I've talked to a lot of strategists and pollsters over the last few years, and they say that it's very common for Congress just to move slower than the American public on something like this. And the only time we've seen the American public change so quickly on an issue one strategist told me was was with gay marriage. And that did not necessarily require 
something federal to happen aside from, uh, well, it was the Supreme Court, right? It wasn't Congress passing a law that changed that. So this is a much more complex thing where you've got taxes, you've got regulations, you've got grant programs, expungements. You know, do we let states decide? Do we not let states decide? What do we do with drugged driving? What do we do with access for minors? How do we make sure that legal weed isn't going from a legal state into an illegal state and boostering their illicit market? There's so many more complex things to think about than just who are you marrying, right? It's like a a fully regulated industry. So it just requires so many different things for people to disagree on. Right. You mentioned two things, if you could expand on uh, a little bit, though. Expunging past arrests and convictions would also be part of this bill. And then uh, you mentioned doing research into this. There would be mechanisms for grants to be set up so that we could do more research into this, uh, you know, drugged driving. But beyond that, for a long time, researchers Mm -hmm. said that they want to do studies and they can't because obviously it's illegal at the federal level. Immediately by removing the federal penalties on cannabis, you immediately make it much easier to research because researchers do not then have to go through the very complex controlled substances research process of, of getting an exception or a um, not an exception, but a permit to or a license to research controlled substances. So that would be easy immediately. And they're then also providing funding and directly asking the National Institutes of Health and a couple other federal agencies to do research or to commission research into drug driving, into the impact that cannabis could have on um, the human brain. And we know that there's a lot of impacts, that there's potential for help, you know, maybe with PTSD, but there's also potential where it could hurt the human brain with youth ages 15 to 25 and the potential that it could cause psychosis in some people. There's so many questions that there in like, how does it impact the human brain that that's something that they really want to put money toward researching. There's also, you know, you mentioned the expungements, and that's a whole other side of this that's very, very important to a lot of lawmakers and actually has a little bit more Republican support than I think some of the other portions of the bill does, where they're looking at this and saying, if this is something that we're going to decriminalize, we're going to say it's not wrong to do this anymore, then what do we do with the people who have criminal records for it? What do we do with the people who currently are serving any type of sentence for this? And the bill would immediately, or within a year, expunge federal records. And then past that, any state that legalizes cannabis can apply for these grants that will help the state fund record expungement. It's obviously takes manpower and, you know, maybe a coding program. It it takes money to expunge records. And so they don't want this to the impetus for paying for it to be on the people who have those records. And they don't want to discourage states from doing it, but they're like, where do we find the funding for this? So there are grants for that. And then there's a whole other set of grants that states can use to create equity programs, but they can't qualify for those grants unless they go through the process of expunging records. So there's like a couple different layers of record expungements, both incentives and then the mandated federal ones in the bill. Well, it'll be interesting to see what this does for the debate on marijuana. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's an uphill battle, but we'll see how far we get on all of that. Natalie Fertig, federal cannabis policy reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Finally for this week, a story about a junior Microsoft engineer who figured out how to generate Xbox gift card codes 
and sell them for Bitcoin in a scheme that netted him over $10 million. This engineer worked in a department that tested online infrastructure by generating codes and making purchases. These purchases didn't go through as they were only tests, but the gift card codes had real money associated with them. While the scheme was simple and successful, he left behind a lot of breadcrumbs that investigators used to catch him. For more on this $10 million gift card cheat, we'll speak to Austin Carr, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. First thing you really have to know is we all interact with these gift cards since, you know, if you're a customer of Starbucks or were a customer in the past of Blockbuster, you've probably seen these gift cards on the tall racks when you were checking out of CVS or at Target. And what we don't realize is these things correspond to a certain code, which has a prescribed value set. So if you buy a gift card from Applebee's or Domino's, or in this case for Microsoft, Xbox, there's a code on the back which corresponds to a particular number that might be worth $20 or $100, anything that a relative might get you for Christmas or a birthday. And this engineer, his name is Vladimir Kvashuk, he had started at Microsoft in their retail group, and he was essentially testing how to work around the e-commerce infrastructure, trying to look for bugs, test improvements. And during that process, which we can talk about a little bit more in depth, he realized he could generate unlimited amounts of gift cards to the Microsoft online store. And as you noted, he ended up generating millions and millions of dollars worth of these things. But as we, we've all interacted with him, but we don't quite realize that gift cards have an inherent value and they can be redeemed for all types of goods, which is really the true crux of, of the scam he pulled off. Right. He was working at Microsoft. He was making these test purchases and he found out that when he generated those codes for these test purchases, they still had that real val dollar value ascribed to them. So he started off small, as they all do, testing out the waters. But uh, he moved on pretty quickly in two years time is what he when he got to this ten point one million dollars. And he had stolen more than 152,000 Xbox gift cards, these codes. So tell us a little more how he did it. What was the process to go through? Essentially, as part of his job, uh, he was looking for errors in payment systems on Microsoft's retail platform. So uh, because he was an internal engineer at Microsoft, he was given a particular account that allowed him to play around with the online retail store and essentially make purchases. But they were all supposed to be fake. If he ordered, say, a computer or a laptop or a tablet or an Xbox video game console from the, the Microsoft retail website, the website knew he was an internal tester and it would let him complete the transaction and it would know not to actually deliver the good. It just uh, the product itself. It would know that he was just a tester and didn't actually deliver any of these products to his address. But as he was testing this, he realized that Microsoft was actually not putting in that same safeguard for digital purchases. So when he was buying digital gift cards, essentially those codes that are on the back of any physical card at retail, he realized they were actually emailed to him in receipts with real value. And so he could redeem them for real goods, whether that was a Lenovo laptop or a Sonos speaker or an NVIDIA graphics card. So essentially, he was able to generate unlimited amounts of this virtual currency and redeem it for any number of products. And so he actually, in the year late 2017, early 2018, started to realize that this, this vulnerability was available for him to exploit. And he decided to go for it for whatever reason. He just, he just perhaps <laughs> it, was, it was greed or it was just too hard to avoid this sort of glare sort of stupid overlooked error, if you will. And what he did was start generating Xbox codes, gift cards, using his testing accounts that he got from Microsoft. And he actually went so far as to create an automated app to generate 
hundreds of thousands of these things just because it was too slow to generate them manually. He didn't want to generate a gift card one by one. He wanted to do them dozens, hundreds at a time. And that's what he did and was able to just keep generating them in the early part of 2018. And then the big quest was to sort of how do you get that value out of the gift cards. You can't, you know, if you're redeeming 152,000 gift cards, that might be kind of slow. So how do you get rid of this stuff and actually get real cash from it? Yeah. And that's another interesting part of it. You know, going back real quick, just uh, whether it was greed or just you can't avoid not exploiting this thing. You know, the job that he had there was he was making $116,000 a year. That's pretty decent for an in-house engineer there. So you you find these exploitations and, and maybe it's just too hard to not do it. And you mentioned kind of using these test accounts. He was even using his coworkers' accounts, guessing their passwords and doing it under their names, you know, which figures it into, uh, figures a little bit into the story later. But back to the scam and, and how he actually started making the money, there was already an online marketplace where you could trade gift cards for cryptocurrency. And this is where he went on. This is where he started. Uh, he meet, met a few clients and then was really exchanging that cash. There's actually a bunch of online platforms these days that exist to trade gift cards, often for cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum. So what Vladimir ended up doing, um, and all of this is pretty evident in uh, documents of his internet traffic that government officials and investigators were later able to collect. And if you read the story, there's just fascinating sort of indications of what he was searching for at that time on his home computer. And one of those searches was how to sell gift cards for cryptocurrency. And he found a platform called Paxful.com, which he realized he could sell all these Xbox gift cards that he had collected for a huge discount, 55% off the retail price, and then was selling them for Bitcoin. And he was selling them at first in small increments. I think that's a pretty common thing among hackers or scam artists, anyone who doesn't have a history of, of sort of criminal behavior to start small, And when you realize you can get away with it to steal a little bit more. And as he was going on, his rates were so good. He was actually responsible for global fluctuations in the price of Xbox gift cards. He was reselling so many of these things that it was changing the reseller price in all these markets. And he ended up finding two clients that were willing to buy these things in bulk because they had a lot of Bitcoin and they were willing to sell it in exchange for Xbox gift cards. So some of these trades, I mean, there were tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, as he was going on through these platforms. And what's most fascinating is in the story, you can see all how the negotiations worked, how they interacted, where they were uh, bartering over prices for these things. And it's just really fascinating to see how he's able to sort of launder these gift cards through cryptocurrency and then sell that crypto through different platforms in, in exchange for U.S. dollars. You mentioned he had two major clients. One was a, a trader who claimed they were based in China. They were doing big money buys. And the other one was a high school student who was <laughs> buying them and then flipping them to other students. So it's pretty amazing it's some of the details that we get in there. Okay, so let's move on then. How did they get wind of this? How did they find out that it was actually Volodymyr cheating Microsoft out of all this uh, money here? Well, actually, at the beginning, they didn't realize it was someone inside Microsoft. They, they had not realized it was an inside job. In February 2018, Microsoft's fraud investigation strike team, which is also known as FIST, they saw this massive spike in uh, online purchases from their retail store using Xbox gift cards, which didn't make sense. It was about double the normal level. So either someone's grandmother was giving out a ton of these things prior to Christmas or there was hackers getting involved. And their first theory was actually that, yeah, this must be an external bad actor. And they, they because a lot of the redemptions were happening abroad and there was 
clues that led them to believe that this hacker was either based in Japan or Russia. They assumed it was an external bad actor. But after a while, they were able to track down some irregular activity to two internal test accounts assigned to Microsoft employees on the same team as Vladimir. So they actually initially thought it was an external person, realized it was an inside job, but then had to go through the arduous, awkward process of figuring out which employee it might have been literally on Microsoft's campus that might have been stealing this stuff in the night. And it took a lot of investigative work, uh, including by a detective on Microsoft's team who used to work for Scotland Yard and used to work for the London Metropolitan Police as a forensic investigator to sort of track down through forensic evidence, meaning data that exists online, metadata that can be tracked from different computers to sort of zero in on a primary suspect. And it ended up being this kid, Volodymyr, who was in his mid-20s, who became their prime suspect because he left sort of this trail of digital breadcrumbs online by not cleaning up his tracks enough. They ended up firing him. Microsoft fired him. They were still continuing to investigate him. He still kept living that lavish lifestyle instead of, I don't know, taking the money you had and running and, and getting off the grid. When they finally caught up with him and raided his house, they found all of the evidence that they needed, including a list of set that was titled, How I Will Manage My Next $10 Million, <laughs> you know, with a, a, a kind of a wish list of all the other things he wanted to buy and whatnot. Yeah. In the end, I guess he's already been, uh, he's already went to trial and all this. What was he charged with and what is his, his fate in the end? So, you know, what was really fascinating about this is for a computer hacker, their skills are really when it, uh, to sort of covering up their tracks digitally. And it is fascinating, you're right, when they raided that Microsoft fired him in summer 2018. They referred the case to the DOJ, who started their own investigation and ended up raiding his home in middle of 2019, I believe. And what really came from that is as much as he was good at covering his tracks online, he was horrifically bad at covering his tracks in person. Like you noted, he had that sort of smoking gun of a list of how he'd spend his next $10 million. He was, of course, living at that time in a $1.6 million lakefront home in Washington State. He bought an expensive Tesla. He was planning to buy a yacht, a seaplane. He was really living the good life. He was taking a lot of these vacations to Hawaii. And uh, one of the prosecutors, after they found all this incriminating evidence, including USB drives filled with all these gift card codes, said that was the equivalent of raiding a robber's home and finding bags of stolen cash in the defendant's bedroom. And so there was just so much evidence by the time they raided their home that it went to trial in February 2020, right before the pandemic kicked off. And essentially what his defense came down to, Vladimir's defense came down to, was that he didn't steal anything because this wasn't technically real money. It was just gift cards. It was sort of hypothetic play money, sort of monopoly money. And a lot of the government's argument came down to, no, this is real money. You can't buy a Tesla with fake money. You can't buy a $1.6 million with monop- uh, home with monopoly money. And it was just really fascinating to watch how he was trying to defend against these charges of fraud, identity theft, money laundering, and including filing false tax returns because he left off uh, one must, any future criminals out there, you must know that even stolen money, you have to report it to the IRS or they can get you. Right. Oh man, it's such a great story. Yeah. And then he was, uh, I think he's going to be in prison until March of 2027 and probably be deported back to Ukraine after all of this. He has to pay about 8.3 million of it back, but a great story. A lot of good detail in the story. Austin Carr, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.